Bibles, and uh, we can open up to Exodus 34 today. We're going to be in some sections of uh, Exodus uh, 34. Uh, the kids are dismissed as well to, to Children's Church uh, at this time. So Exodus 34, and we're going to read uh, 1 through uh, 10. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come, no one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. Uh, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took his hands in his hands, the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, uh, please let the Lord go in the midst of, uh, of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And the Lord said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you shall you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. Observe what I have commanded you this day. Behold, I will Drive out before you the Amorites, the, Hit, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land which, uh, which you go, lest, you, lest it become a snare in your midst. Skip down to verse uh, 28. Uh, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses was finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had was commanded, the people of Israel would see his face and the skin of Moses's face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to just come into your presence and ask that you would uh, speak to us from your word. 
that we would delight in you, that we would just give you praise and honor and that your Holy Spirit would be at work in, in each one of our hearts. Uh, we pray, Lord, that your presence uh, would be here and we pray that you would uh, just give us uh, the ears to hear and the eyes to see uh, the wonderful things uh, in your word. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. We want to focus today on on steadfast love, on God's steadfast love. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen someone that was steadfast, someone that that held uh, their ground. Uh, Maybe you think of like a a football player who before when they line up on the line, they they dig their feet in, they they brace themselves and they don't move when the ball is snapped. Maybe you think of a military battle, and there are many military heroes who, when the going got tough, when it was gritty, when they were about to be overrun, uh, they just dug in deep and they they held steadfast uh, no matter the cost. And, and oftentimes uh, those are the men uh, and women that, that win medals. They, they have this bravery in the heat of uh, the battle. They show a steadfastness, an immovableness, an, an unrelenting aspect to their, their character. We're in a passage of Scripture where we find out about the character of God and His steadfast or His unrelenting love. And this really goes into uh, the concept of God's grace. That God gives us grace in spite of what we deserve. That God gives us grace when we deserve the exact opposite. And God continues to show us grace even in our lives as we continue to struggle with sin. This is the process of growing in the Christian life. You will have struggles with sin, but God continues to show you grace. Now, that grace should also lead to transformation. Part of his grace is changing us over time. But sometimes in our life, we feel like it's one step forward and two steps back in the Christian walk or two steps forward and one step back. Or sometimes we we crash really hard. And yet God continues to show his children grace. And he's doing that here in this passage for Israel. You remember just two chapters earlier in chapter 32, there was the incident with the golden calf. And God had promised or God had said, I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses stepped out and acted like an intercessor. He was a a type of Christ there. Moses not being himself perfect, uh, but pointing to what the Lord Jesus does uh, for us. And God then continues, even though there's this moment where where God's people deserve his wrath. God continues to show His grace. And we're going to see that in this passage, particularly as God's people had broken the covenant at the very moment that God is making it with them. And what does God do? He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you again. Let's do this over in a sense, if you will. We'll make this covenant. Why? It is because of the character of God in his steadfast love and not because of the character of his people, God's steadfast love. God freely extends grace again. You'll see this here. So God is going to make a covenant that Israel has already broken with the golden calf. He's going to remake it. Look at verses one through three. The Lord said to Moses, 
Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one see uh, be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. Now, this instruction is the same instruction that God had given before. Exodus 24, 12. God tells Moses, come up on the mountain, wait there. I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments, which I've written on written for their instruction. And he had said also, you know, don't let people come up. Don't let the herds get on the mountain. My glory is coming down. One of the differences you'll notice, though, is first time around, God makes the stone tablets second time around because Moses had broken them as he came down the mountain. And I think that was also symbolic of of that the covenant that God had just made was has is being broken down below. God says to Moses, you make the stone tablets and and come up to the mountain. Now, I don't know and I, I don't really think there's anything theological there that we should read into that. Well, God made it the first time and now Moses had to make it. I, I just think that's a matter of the way uh, that it played out. Uh, and maybe it made Moses regret breaking them. I, I don't know. And I don't know how long it took him to chisel uh, out the rocks or, or whatever. Uh, but that's just the way it kind of unfolds. So, again, Moses goes up and the Lord descends. This is what had happened before. Now it's happening again. Moses cut two tablets like the first. He rose up early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him took in his hands the two tablets. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So there is this theophany, this appearing of God again in this wonderful cloud of glory where God is going to make a covenant. God is going to do again exactly what he had just done and the people of God had just broken. That is a picture of the grace of God. That is a picture of God being unrelenting in keeping his promises. He had every right to say, these aren't my people anymore. And in fact, he had been saying, I am going to destroy them. Moses, I will make a great nation out of you. You're the only one faithful to me in a sense. I'll get this done a different way. And Moses, again, being a type of Christ, pleaded before the Lord Uh, It's not that Moses uh, changed God's mind. It's that Moses is a picture of reminding, if you will, reminding God of his grace. He says, you've made these promises. I'm appealing to you based on your name and your glory. Why does God show grace? God shows grace for reasons known only to himself and for purposes that glorify his name. There's nothing inside of us. There's nothing inside of the people of Israel here that make them worthy of being given a second chance. This is what forgiveness means. Somebody wronged someone or in this case, God is wronged and we have sinned against a holy God. You don't deserve a second chance. But when you are forgiven, things are wiped away. Things are Forgiven, things are removed, sin is paid for, it is taken care of. So God makes again this covenant. Skip down to verses 10 and 11 so we can see this is exactly what is going on. 
Behold, I am making a covenant before your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation and among whom you shall see and among the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe that I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Notice that God is promises to do it again. He's going to be gracious. He's going to make the covenant. And he says, I'm going to give you the promised land as I promised. And I'm going to drive out these nations. And it's interesting then when the spies go up into the nation, the 12 spies, you know, 10 come back and say, there's no way that we can do this. There's giants in the land. It's going to be horrible. And, and Caleb and Joshua say, we got this. Because God is with us and God is going to do this. This is taking God at his word. Observe, behold, I will drive out before you. And he lists the nations. The reason God is going to do this is because God is going to be faithful to his promises. God is showing that steadfast love, that covenant faithfulness. And part of God's covenant promise to Abraham was... The promised land. Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham to your offspring. I will give this land from the river of Egypt, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kezanites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Peronites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Now, if you're keeping score, you'll notice the repeats there in Exodus are the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. I don't know what happened to the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Kadmonites, uh, the Perizzites and the Raphim. Uh, maybe those were already uh, in the process of being wiped out or maybe they had just assimilated. Uh, the point being, God made the promise to Abraham 400, more than 400 years earlier. Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after that, after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. I will give to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, the land of Canaan, and for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations. This is an unconditional promise. Why was Israel sinful as she was getting the promised land? Because God is faithful to his promises. God shows loyalty and covenant love even when God's people do not, and in fact had broke the covenant. So the covenant then is written on tablets of stone, Exodus 34, 4, and, and 5. And I tend to think that the two tablets, sometimes what we think is that, well, you know, they needed two tablets because it was long. You know, five commandments on one side, five commandments on the other. I tend to think because this is a covenant being made, and, and other scholars tend to, uh, to think this way as well, uh, or some do, that what happens is you write all ten on one tablet and you write all ten on the other tablet and it's a symbol of the two parties of the covenant. 
So if you've ever like bought a house or signed like legal documents, uh, you know, there's like what makes them so long is not only do you have to initial every page, but however long it is, you have to have two stacks of them. Uh, we just renewed uh, a rental agreement with the people that rent our house up in the Poconos. And so I had to, you know, print out the whole rental agreement again and you have to sign it and initial every page. And, and, and then you have to send them a stack and you have to send the stack that, that they need to sign to send back to you so that both parties have. So if there's ever a dispute and they're wonderful renters, so I'm, you know, hoping and praying and assuming there never will be. But but if there's ever a dispute, they have their copy of the contract. We have our copy of the contract. And I think it's the symbolism here of the covenant. You, you write two copies on the tablets to symbolize there are two parties making this. God is making a covenant with his people and the people are under the obligations of the covenant. Now, God doesn't need the, the Ten Commandments written down. It's not like he's going to forget the contract and, and forget the covenant and pull this out. And Oh, gee, what did I sign myself up to here? Oh, yeah. OK. Oh, darn it. I can't I can't wipe these people out because of their sin. All right. All right. No, it, but it, but it's the symbolism that they are in. Israel is in a relationship. God keeps his promises and his grace, even when we are unfaithful. Second Peter two or excuse me, second Timothy two thirteen. And there's a there's a much larger context to this, but I just want to highlight this verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, he's not talking about uh, unbelievers or people that go into apostasy and deny the Lord. But he's talking about believers, and we stumble. And there are times in our life where we don't do the right thing. There are times in our life where we are faithless, where we disobey God, where we struggle in trusting God, maybe, in things that we know that we should. And what does God do? Does he pack it in? Well, that's it. That's, you know, I gave you grace. I gave you a second shot. I gave you a third shot. I'm done. This is, this is ridiculous. Now, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. For the genuine child of God, God does not cut them off from his grace and his mercy. We're not talking about people that make false professions. We're not talking about people that go into apostasy and show that they never believed to begin with. We're talking about the child of God whom God has redeemed and begun a good work. And how many of us has God begun a good work in? And we sin. And we stumble. And we wander. And we go through hard times. And God brings us back. And God shows us grace. And we think to ourselves, I really don't deserve this. Why would God ever take me back? We think we had our one shot, our second chance, and we blew it. And yet God is good because he keeps his promises. His grace abounds. He is faithful even when we are unfaithful. You can think of the examples in Scripture. Peter denying Christ. Three times. Jesus even said, you're going to do this. And Peter said, whoa, not me. No, 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 no. Have you ever have you ever done that? You know, you know, said to yourself, I'm never going to fall into that sin. And then what happens? Fall into that sin. 
And what does God do? What does Jesus do with Peter? He restores him. I don't know why. Because there are so many times Jesus says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. Peter knew those things. You can see why he's racked with guilt afterwards. And what does Jesus do? He extends grace where grace wasn't deserved. That's the nature of grace. You can think in the Old Testament of the story of Hosea. And the story of Hosea is a picture between uh, God and his people. Hosea is told to marry a woman who's a prostitute. And God says she's going to be unfaithful again. Maybe, I don't know, maybe when, when Hosea married her, she was at the time repentant. But this was deep in her history. And she goes again and she's unfaithful. And Hosea is told to take her back. I can't imagine what Hosea went through. The betrayal, the hurt, the, the anger, the pain. It's a picture of what God does for us in our sins. How many times are our sins against a holy and righteous and, and good God, even as a Christian? And what does God do? Does he sign the divorce papers? Does he say, that's it, we're done? He brings his children back. God is faithful even when we are not. Notice, second, this morning, God's character entails steadfast love, faithfulness, grace, and mercy. Exodus 34, 6-7, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy and graciousness, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is such a crucial passage of Scripture. It is, it is almost unbelievable how many times in the Old Testament this language, particularly the language of abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is repeated. You have a number of places where the whole phrase, a God of gracious and mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is repeated. It's, it's this summary statement of the character of God. This is his wonder. This is how amazing he is. This, this is an, a description of his awesomeness. It's not a description of, of all of his majesty, but it's a description of the goodness of his character. So, he's a God of mercy. Mercy is when you see someone's estate, when you see their condition, and you have compassion. You respond to the need that is there, you see it for what it is, and you act. It's, it's like when you have empathy. Someone is hurting, you see that they need help, mercy reaches out in compassion. Ah, oh, that's horrible what you're going through. Let me come and help you. Let me get you out of this. Let me do something for you. I see that you can't take care of this yourself. It's, it's like the doctor in the hospital. He sees the patient and, and hopefully part of the doctor has mercy. 
Now, you need doctors to kind of be clinical and, and detached and, and be logical, but, but you also need someone there. And sometimes it's not the doctor, it's someone else in the hospital. You know, uh, maybe it's the chaplain that stops by or the pastor that, that, oh, this is horrible what you're going through. The, the mercy that, that gets down there and holds someone's hand and, and comforts them and cares for them. Mercy considers the lowly and dire straits of the one to whom you are extending it. Joel 2.13 Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. What is this mercy here? He, he doesn't give you what you deserve. He sees the estate that you're in. Jonah 4.2 uh, And you can see elements, again, of of the whole Exodus phrase being uh, repeated. Uh, Jonah says he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is it not this what I said when I was in my country? This is what made me flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So Moses or excuse me, Jonah is told to go and preach to Nineveh. Who's in Nineveh? The Assyrians. Who are the Assyrians? They are horrible, wicked, bad people. I mean, they are just brutal murderers. Their armies are trampling everything, including the people of God. And God says to Jonah, hey, go and preach to them. Tell them I'm going to destroy the city. Why doesn't Jonah go? Why does he go down to Tarshish? It's not because he doesn't want to see them get destroyed. Like, if he knew God was going to destroy him, he would have gone in there like, yeah, it's coming, Assyria, you're going to get it. What did he know? He knew that if they repented, God would relent. And he didn't want them to get grace. He wanted them to get what they deserved. Aren't we like that sometimes? Someone wrongs us, someone hurts us, we want them to get what they deserve. Brothers and sisters, that's not how God treats us. And Jonah is frank. I knew. I knew. God, you're gracious. And not just with the Israelite people. You're merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Psalm 78, 38. Yet he being compassionate, or you can... Translate it, yet he being merciful, atoned for their iniquities and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. That's the mercy of God. Second, there's the grace of God. The Lord is gracious. Grace is favor extended where wrath is, is deserved. So mercy has that element of you see the estate and you have pity. Grace has that element of what really is deserved is the wrath and you give give the exact opposite. I don't want to say it, it's not I don't want to say it's less emotional than mercy, but but it doesn't have that that pity component. It has that they deserve wrath component. You can you can be merciful on someone who who doesn't deserve what they're going through and you just have compassion on them. But when someone actually deserves the punishment and you don't give it to him, and you give him the exact opposite. That is the grace 
uh, element. So hopefully that makes sense. But the Lord is gracious. And of course, mercy and graciousness go hand in hand in the character of God. He's slow to anger. We often don't think, particularly people that don't know their Bibles, there's that caricature out there. God in the Old Testament is an angry God who just kills everybody. And in the New Testament, he's the kind and loving God. We often don't think how slow to anger God is. And he is that way with us. God's wrath, his anger is just. It never comes to the surface quickly. It is never him losing his cool, flying off the handle. It's not anger like human anger, where sometimes you're just boiling up. And you just have to let off the steam. And sometimes even in our patients, we just go, enough is enough. And then we just really react. God's anger isn't that kind of uh, reactionary anger. Even when God determines to exercise and demonstrate his anger and judge sin, it's it's not God flying off at the handle. I've had enough. It is God deciding to exercise his justice. But God's anger is always under his control of his character. It's always an exercise and a demonstration of holiness. It is never a temper. He's slow to anger. Um, Some commentators have pointed out, literally, you you could be very literal with these words and say that it's long in the nose. Uh, And you think about how uh, when you get really angry, like you're just be seething with anger, sometimes like your nose flares. I don't know if I can do it or even if I can do it, I don't know if you can see it. But, you know, like you're just like, you know, how in the cartoons too, the, the temperature thing and you get all red and then there's steam coming out of the nose. I mean, that, that's the imagery. Right. And, and the idea is he's long in the nose. It takes a long time for God's anger to manifest itself. It's not. A flare-up. God doesn't sit there seething, going, shh, 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 these people deserve what they're going to get, and I'm going to give it to them. It's an exercise of His holiness. Again, Psalm 78:38, the second half, He restrained His anger often, and He did not stir up all His anger. Speaking of human anger, but I think it gives you a picture. Whoever is slow in anger has great understanding He who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So what's the contrast between being slow in anger? Uh, Hasty temper. God doesn't have that. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. He who is slow to anger quiets contention. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit better than one who takes the city. If you think of it this way, God has perfect self-control over all of his attributes. He doesn't fly off the handle. He rules his own spirit, if we could put it in a human analogy. Even he says, you know, he says he's going to drive out these nations, these wicked, idolatrous nations. You know how long he waited to do that? 430 years. He let those idolatrous nations who deserved every bit of sin and judgment He let them go on for 430 years while he let his children go down into Egypt, into slavery. And he told Abraham he was going to do this because their sins weren't yet full. That is how patient God is. 
Sometimes when we're angry, we can't even wait five minutes or five days. And God waits 430 years. Why does it seem that God is slow in returning sometimes? Because he is patient and wants people to come to repentance. And he is not yet ready to pour out his wrath, even though we deserve it. He is slow to anger. The fourth attribute in this series, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I would submit to you that this is the most beautiful attribute of God in the scriptures. Steadfast love. Some of your translations might say loving kindness if you see it elsewhere in scripture. Uh, There's a Hebrew word here, and I'm just going to give it to you because maybe it'll stick out in your mind. uh, You know, that, that describes this steadfast love. And the reason I want to give you the Hebrew word is because there's not really one good English word that translates this word. This is why we don't it doesn't just say love. It doesn't just say grace here. It says steadfast love. I kind of like the idea of unrelenting love. I found that in one of the commentaries. But the Hebrew word is hesed. Uh, And maybe you could say that with a little more in it if you're a good Hebrew person. But hesed. Uh, he, the Hebrew hesed, this is one commentator, cannot be translated with one English word. It is a term, a covenant term wrapped up in itself, which wraps up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. Uh, you might even say covenant loyalty is something that I've seen thrown out there. In short, Acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. One commentator says it's beneficent action in the context of commitment between two parties. So it is love. It is grace. It is showing goodness and, and benefiting someone else in the context of a bond, in the context of, of a covenant uh, in the context of a relationship. Uh, the book of Ruth talks about this some. And Naomi says, after they find Boaz, and Ruth tells her about it, she says, May Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, whose chesed, has not forsaken the living or the dead. God has a character of love and loyalty And it is something that we do not deserve. God unites himself to his people. It is likened unto a marriage. He gives gifts of grace and mercy and all of these things that we do not deserve. When we are sinful, God freely lavishes this out on us. And then we're sinful again. And what does God do in his steadfast love and faithfulness? God doesn't walk away. He sticks to his promises. He keeps his oath. He says we are in a bond, in a covenant. I made promises to you, to Abraham, to his descendants. I promised grace. It was a covenant. It was a one-way covenant. Yeah, you broke it. But guess who didn't break it? God didn't. Break it. And so what does God do? He shows this chesed, this 
unrelenting love where he is bound to his people and faithfulness to his word. He keeps his promises. He shows the loyalty. Did the people of God deserve it? No. They had made the golden calf. But the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this faithfulness is an element then of keeping that covenant and that covenant loyalty of the Hesed. It's not too much to say that the whole narrative of the Bible is a story of God showing Hesed and faithfulness to his people. Showing unrelenting love in a covenant commitment. They sin. He, he punishes them. He sends some justice, but he sends the prophets. There's a revival. They sin. He sends another prophet. He sends more prophets. He sends them into exile. They repent. He brings them out of exile. And he sends the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of this Hesed of God. That he promised grace and mercy from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15. And God's people and the people on earth continued to go astray. They had no right to it. There was nothing in us. And as sin continued and abounded and and, and overflows in the world from, from the day of the sin in Genesis all the way up until today, there is nothing in any of us that deserves the sacrifice of Christ. If God was being fair and just, he wouldn't have sent Christ. But God was being faithful, loving, gracious, and keeping his promise. Why did God make his promise? For reasons known only to himself. For the sake of his glory and his name. So that he gets all the credit. There was nothing inside of us that could turn God and make him uh, make. You know, we can't manipulate him into making uh, the promise for us. Notice in verse 7 it says he keeps steadfast love for the thousands. And this probably should. It does say thousands, but it's but it's connected to this third and fourth generation. So we should translate it thousands generations and, and Deuteronomy 7 9 says actually that that he keeps his his commandments uh, he keeps his covenant as steadfast love to a thousand generations so it's not just that God loves and shows steadfast love to thousands of people but it's this contrast he shows it to a thousand generations meaning when will God break his covenant what generation will he say to you know what that that's it we're done no more covenant I've you know, you guys keep messing it up. You keep screwing up. We're out. Never. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That's Psalm 139. It's the, the ongoing refrain. And so you see here as well this contrast that he judges sin, visits iniquity on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I want to make four comments on this uh, third and fourth generation thing because I think it's often misunderstood. Four comments. One, uh, excuse me. One, don't interpret this like the generational curse that you sometimes hear about. 
So you sometimes hear, and it's particularly prominent in Pentecostal circles, that, that anytime there's this sin, or particularly really big sins, there's an automatic generational curse that goes to the third or fourth generation. You have to do something special to break it. Uh, sometimes it's sins where there's been abuse. Sometimes it's sins of idolatry. Sometimes you know, maybe it's you had witchcraft, you know, whatever they make it. And they say, well, it automatically goes to the third and fourth generation. Now, we're not denying that there are just effects of sin that comes down through to families. But what I'm saying is there's not this mystical, magical, generational curse that unless you go through some sort of specific prayer, you, you won't be able to break it. Now, if you have wounds that have traveled down from your family, deal with them. Go to the Lord, go to counselors, come see me, whatever you need, talk to friends, whatever you need to do. But we're not talking a generational curse that's this automatic, it hangs over you, you're guilty of things that you didn't do. Second, this is not against individual responsibility. Everyone needs to repent. And Ezekiel is really clear on this as, as progressive revelation comes along. Ezekiel 18, 20 to 22. You might want to just write this down so you, you, if anybody ever throws out to you, oh, well, there's a generational curse. You can say, well, no, there's not. Uh, Ezekiel 18, 20 to 22. The soul whose sins shall die. A son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of a son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But a wicked person turns away from his, if a wicked person turns away from his sin that he has committed and keeps my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live and he shall not die. So you can't say like, well, I'm the second generation or I'm the third generation and I really want to repent. But I have this curse over me, and so there's no hope for me. That's No, if you repent, Ezekiel says, you, you've treated that way. None of the transgressions he has committed shall be remembered against him. This is the one who repents. And the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Number three, there is a unique covenant context to Israel living in the land. So some of this this third and fourth generation stuff is specific to the time frame of Israel in the Old Testament. And, and one of the places you can see this in particular is how the sins culminate in the judgment of God and the covenant curses on, on Israel in the Old Testament. So you have Manasseh, the king, who starts sacrificing his children to Moloch. It's, it's really brutal. It's scary. It's horrible. You have Josiah that comes along and he repents and he leads this awesome repentance and it's good in his days for himself. He tears down all the idols, the Asherah poles, the Baals, all of those things. It's this major repentance. And, and God is so gracious and they celebrate Passover it with more uh, intensity than they've ever celebrated it before. And, and, and God is merciful and gracious. And that, but he still says, yeah, but because of Manasseh's sins, you're still going to go into exile. It won't be in your days, Josiah. You've lived right. You've done the right things. You've led the people of God or many of them back to God. But there still needs to be the consequences that I promise. So there's this context that applies specifically to the Old Testament. So you don't have to say, well, I have this sin in my life. What's going to happen four generations from now that God is going to punish it? Because we don't live in the nation of Israel. We're not under those Old Testament standards and where where the people of God are also the civil nation. Notice also there is a stark contrast between the lavishness of God's grace and his judgment for sin. 
He lavishes his grace to the thousands generations. This really is where the contrast is. God is faithful for thousands of generations to his people, to Israel, to us. His his faithfulness and covenant love will not end. When you sin and return to the Lord in repentance, God doesn't say, I'm not giving you another chance anymore. You blew it. We are done. No, God shows his hesed. And he continues to keep it. And I'm sure if we sat down with you and talked about your life today, you could think of countless times where you sinned and God was gracious. And you sinned and God was gracious. And sometimes in our guilt, we ourselves get to this point where we say, I did it again. God isn't going to forgive me this time. I know better. I knew better. Maybe it's a new sin. Maybe it's the same old sin. But you're really broken. And you're really repentant. But then in that brokenness, you think to yourself, why would God even give me another chance? This is the nature of grace and mercy and the forgiveness of God. His steadfast love to the thousands. It's not to say that there aren't consequences sometimes. But definitely, God continues to forgive his children. I have a whole bunch of verses that I was going to read to you where you have this picture of steadfast love. It's all over the Psalms. I would encourage you, you know, now that you know the word, you know, when you see in your English Bible, steadfast love or maybe loving kindness, uh, start to realize that, that those are, are the words. You can find people in Scripture that, that show this. And this is part of, like, when I know God and I know his character towards me, my response needs to be to show this kind of hesed, this covenant faithfulness, this steadfast love. I need to show it to other people, even sometimes, many times, when they wrong me. I don't want to forgive. They really wronged me. But I need to show that steadfast love because God himself has shown it to me. So you think of David. David and Jonathan enter a covenant. And God or David shows Hesed to Jonathan. Jonathan dies in battle. What does David do? He takes care of Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan. He keeps his word. He keeps his covenant. Ruth is a, a wonderful example her, her husband dies. She, what, shows Hesed to Naomi. Naomi says, no, no, stay in the land. You can get remarried. Uh, just, and, and what does Ruth say? My God will be your God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be loyal. And, and Naomi says, you're never going to get a husband. I don't, have any, I don't have any more kids coming out of my womb, she says. You, you realize what you're sacrificing? Motherhood? You're, you're giving up everything for me. And Ruth shows Hesed to her mother-in-law. Of course, then God is gracious and, and provides Boaz. And this is part Naomi starts to realize God has shown me Hesed. Because Naomi was the one with her husband who left the land, left the promised land. It's like walking away from your inheritance or walking away from your salvation in, in, in a sense. 
and, and going down to the land of the Canaanites because you've got to provide for your food, but you're not staying in the land trusting God. She's down there. Her life is ruined. She comes back up saying, there's no hope, nothing. I'm going to be miserable the rest of my life. I'm going to be grief. I deserve what I'm getting. And what does God do? Not only does, she provide for Naomi, does he provide for Naomi, he provides for Ruth. Uh, Naomi becomes a grandmother. And the line of David comes through Naomi and Ruth. That is the Hesed character of God. And that is the grace that God shows in our lives. There's more that we could say about this. Yes, God does judge sin. This is why there's the cross. So that God can justify those who have faith in him and be just against our sin. So God showing this covenant faithfulness is that he sends Christ so that my sins are paid for and taken care of. And I can enjoy this love and fellowship with the living God who has extended this grace that I don't deserve. I don't deserve the covenant loyalty that God shows. I deserve God divorcing me and treating me as my sins deserve in judgment. And God doesn't do that. This is the wonderful character of God. And this is why I say it is one of the most beautiful attributes of God in Scripture. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are definitely in need of your hesed, of your steadfast love, your unrelenting love that you show in faithfulness to your covenant, that when we have broken your promises, you keep your promise, that you extend grace, grace that by very definition of what grace is, we absolutely do not deserve it. We do deserve to be punished as guilty, to be treated as our sins deserves, which you do say you will by no means clear the guilty. And yet, how is it that you save those of us who are guilty, who do deserve that death? You have sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, give us a picture of this grace. Give us a picture of this hesed, this steadfast love. May you show it in our life to such an intensity and degree that we show steadfast love in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.